Mark Sheen, welcome to Wolf Dan. It's good to be here, Rich. Now, um, we just finished the Spring Carnival basically on Saturday. The last of the Group 1s were out of the way. It was a great Spring Carnival. I'm sure you enjoyed it. And um, you've been one of the more respected judges in the, in the great game for a long time now. And I just wanted to start by talking to you about a few of the, the, um, the better performers over the springtime that... Um, that you think will go into bigger and better things in the autumn and also that you're probably looking forward to backing in the autumn. I thought we'd break it down. We'd do three horses, a two-year-old, a three-year-old and an older horse. Can we start with the two-year-old? I know it's a little hard because it's very early in the two-year-old season, um, but was there a two-year-old that sort of impressed you when you're looking forward to maybe having a, a long-range bet on the slipper or something like that? Well, look, you're right. There, there hasn't been a lot of races yet and um, there haven't been many trial either. They're, you know, they're, they're becoming later and later every year, so... Look, it's Captain Obvious at the moment that Shangri-La Express is... Um, I think he's being ridden upside down, personally. Really? Um, look, they're driving him mad to go to the front. And he's been a bit fizzy in the yard as well. So oh, I personally would think that uh, in the long run he'd be better off with a trail. But, yeah. you know, they're getting the job done. Yeah. Um, but, look, there's a lot of water under the bridge yet, yeah. a lot of horses to come yeah. um, before slipper time. And you're very involved in two-year-olds, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about that a bit later in the podcast, especially your affiliation with James Harron Bloodstock. But if we move on from the two-year-olds for now and the three-year-olds, it starts to get a bit easy to put the puzzles together um, somewhat. What did you make of the three-year-old crop over the spring? Look, I think there's one sleeper there is Celestial Legend for me. Okay. Uh, this horse, um, oh, look, it was a strange preparation. I, I can't believe they didn't go to the Coolmore with him. They gave him two runs at Rose Hill where he just got lost around the circle. Mm. He didn't finish all that far behind King's Gambit and Osmosis and both runs he was hitting the line really well. I, I thought that uh, he just wasn't suited at Rose Hill, even though he'd won there, but he'd won a two-year race uh, against lacklustre opposition. But uh, I thought he was certainly worth a crack down the straight and but Les just gave him the two runs and put him away. So I think for the autumn he might be the one that's sort of flying under the radar a little bit. And if you were in charge of his preparation over the autumn, is there a particular race that you'd like to put him in? Oh, look, I th he'd be going for all the major three-odd races. I, yeah. I, you know, the sprint races anyway. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure what he's going to aim him at. Um, yeah. He's obviously got something in mind to give him a light a light spring and then aim him for the autumn next year. And he's got a huge opinion of him, doesn't he, Lethbridge? Well, I think so. Um, he's cuddled him, so he must yeah. have thought that he, you know, he's got something in the tank for later on. But uh, as I said, I'd, I had something. I went in the Coolmore. I got my money back because it was pre-noms. But, yeah, um, yeah I, th I thought he was worth a crack down the straight anyway. Yeah, what about the older horses? A lot of, lot of horses stood up. Yeah, I'm not – look, I, I, I'm a bit more focused on the two- and three-year-olds, to yeah. tell you the truth. Uh, I did have a peanut on the Melbourne Cup winner that were without a fight. Like, I'd been overseas when he won in um, – uh, through uh, through the winter, but I came back and did the videos and was very impressed with him. So yeah. I managed to have something on him, but I didn't back many other winners in Melbourne, I must say. Yeah, yeah, it was a difficult carnival. We yeah. got absolutely pumped. Very good. Okay, so moving on from that, so just a, a bit of a quick background of how you sort of got into it all. You, you, I guess you had no choice but to get into horse racing because your family had a pretty long tradition in horse racing. Did your great-grandfather, your grandfather rode a Mel Corfield Cup winner? My grandfather, uh, Fred, 1938, he rode the uh, Caulfield Cup, Melbourne Cup and the Williamstown Cup, which is the equivalent of the Sandown Cup. Mm -hmm. He won those three races wow. on three different horses. Yeah. Oh, wow. Which was All amazing. in one year or? Same year, 1938. Yeah. He won the, won the Epsom at Ramick as well. He won the Oaks in 38. He had a magical year in 38. So yeah. he was one of the leading riders in 
in Sydney and, um, yeah, three different horses won the Melbourne Cup on, on catalogue, led most of the way. And an eight-year-old, he was the oldest horse to win the cup for many years. Yeah. But here comes Bourbon now, threading his way through the field into about sixth place and stretching out. But the leader is still catalogued. Yes, the 25 to 1 shot is flying away from the field. There goes Bourbon setting out after catalogue now. But catalogue has it sewn up. And although Bourbon finishes fast, catalogue goes on to win by three lengths from Bourbon. Hortel Star fights it out for third place for the Lunga, who finishes fourth. So New Zealand springs another surprise. And the eight-year-old catalogue, the oldest horse in the race, rises from obscurity to win one of the world's greatest turf classics, the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. And what was your relationship like with him? Did you learn a lot about the racing game off him? Uh, well, he was... He got, he got pretty old at the finish where, I, no, he'd go to the races, but no, I, I wasn't learning off him as such. I'd, mm. I was going to the races on my Pat Malone when I was about 13. I'd, mm. I'd get the train to Rose Hill or go to Ramwick. We'd, after school, we'd get a cab out and go into the flat at Ramwick for midweeks. Um, and were your parents involved in racing? Parents were SPing actually. They had yeah. a couple of pubs um, in the Redfern area, to tell you the truth. My, my mum's uh, father and, and mother managed the... Duke of Norfolk in uh, Cleveland Street. Yeah. yeah, goes good these days. So they managed that and then wow. they got involved in SP in a couple of pubs yeah. in the Redfern area. Yeah. Um, we were actually living in a housing commission at Redfern. Yeah. Uh, next minute we were living, uh, looking over Tamarama Beach. So they, yeah. they kicked a bit Seriously? of a goal. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. So, um, That's incredible. So you think that they, they won enough SP to SP, go and buy SP one of the better joints Tamarama? Yeah. And it's still, they still, it's still, the Well, f- my mum passed away a couple of years ago, but um, dad's still there. So, yeah. yeah. Brilliant, yeah. brilliant. And, you know, we're going to talk a bit about Mark Reed later on, but his relationship with his mum, Mabel Reed, they were, you know, betting huge. Was that similar to your mum? Was she betting in really, really yeah, big she, numbers? Mum was a big putter. She, she loved everything. Two up. She'd go to the two up games. Yeah. In all the uh, clubs. Yeah. Um, well, no, there was there, there were two up games around the city at that time. You know, with yeah. the legal yeah, yeah the illegal gaming go, clubs. Yeah. She'd go to those. Yeah. yeah. Um, she was just a desperate punter. <laughs> yeah. She really was. Um, pokies. She she'd give the lot a go. Yeah. yeah. And but she was a winner. I don't know. She she just had an uncanny knack of winning. So. She was more the driving force than the old man. I know that. Did she do the form, or was she well informed? She did the form. She did yeah. the form, but being an SPing, you'd see a bit of money coming as well. And yeah. she talked to a lot of people. Eventually, she got out of the SPing with the, the coppers were getting a bit too, you know, too the, yeah. a bit hot. Merv Beck came in, yeah. but they started doing the prices service for the. They'd ring the SP bookies with the the fluctuations. So they did that for a couple of years as well. So yeah. and then then got out of the game. So it was getting a bit tough for the SPs. And Mark Reed tells a great story that he, when he used to go to races with his mum, Mabel Reed, they'd take 50000 cash. Did your mum ever lob at no, races I, with well, that kind of money? Certainly not, not in that uh, not respect, not that no. no. Sphere. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so, so you said you, you were going out the track 13 and whatnot. At what age did you decide, I want to make this my career? Look, I wanted to be a race caller from when I was about 10, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Um, I just loved the races. As I said, I'd go every opportunity that I could. I would start practising at the school holidays. I'd go to the barrier trials and get a spare box and call the two-year-old trials, um, all the other trials that were on. So, yeah, I just I wanted to call and I wanted to be in racing. So, yeah, that and was... And was Ken Howard at the top of the game then or...? Ken Howard um, was just there at, the, at that time. Jeff Marnie was the, the guy who got me my first job. I'd... Um, Without a fluke, it was just a fluke that a, a guy from um, Beacon Hill came to Waverley College where I was going to school 
and his parents were great friends with Jeff Marnie. So Mark and I teamed up together. We were going to the races together. I used to give Jeff the tapes and um, go up and watch the couple of races in his box on occasion and just it, it, it sort of came from that. Yeah. How old were you at this age? Um, probably about 13, 14. Okay, I got so my first young. job calling. He got me a job calling in the bush when I was 16. So yeah. I was still at school. Yeah. I used to fly up on the weekends. And was Ken Howard, he sort of talk, gets talked about in great reverence. Was he, did, you see, did he inspire you to become a caller? Not particularly, no. no I, think, I think Ken Howard was more a radio caller though because he was more theatre. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he would have actually survived in the TV era. Right. Because, you know, he was... You know, coming at a hundred mile an hour, but it was still five lengths away. It was all, yeah. it was all a lot of theatre for him. Sure, more than accuracy. Yeah. Oh, I'm not saying it wasn't accurate. No, but no, I, no, yeah. I'm just saying that you know he pumped up uh, his calls to, to be uh, you know that big booming sort of finish and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff mm-hmm. that um, the TV wise might not have sort of stood the test of time. Mm. So you had ambitions to be a caller, but there was a long, long time before you actually became. You know, a significant caller. Am yeah, I correct in saying that? Yeah, well, I got um, got a job with um, – I called in the bush. I called it Inverell and Glen Ennis. Used to go there on the weekend. Then I got a job at Bathurst and Orange. And, and then, when you were calling, were you just calling for patrons on course or was it also being broadcast on radio and television? Uh, they were on course and then I got a job, Kembla, Newcastle, 2GB. That, that was for radio. Yeah. But then 2GB shut down all their sport and they went talk back. So Johnny Tapp was out of a job. I was understudy to Johnny Tapp. Oh, well, not really understudy, but I was doing the provincials. And so we were out of a job. So um, after that I got a job with um, Bob Charlie. Yeah. Bob Charlie picked me up after that. I was doing the midweek of barrier trials. I was doing the comments for him. So you're not calling anymore. <coughs> you've gone and you've started working yeah. for, for a pro punter. Yeah. But I just want to stop you there. So Bob Charlie was part of the League of Eagles, yeah. correct? First question is... What were the League of Eagles? Like my generation, we hear about them a lot. We don't know much about them. Can you tell us a bit more about them? And also, so Don Scott, who's a bit of a mythical character in our game these days, was part of the League of Eagles, correct? Don Scott was the, the main man in the League of Eagles, but like I was only really a kid, but um, uh, and I was outside, not in the members. I think a lot of them were in the members, but I remember Clive Evett. I think it was Clive mm-hmm. Evett. He was the, uh, he was the runner outside uh, putting the money on in the outer ring. He had about a size 16 shoe and if you saw him coming, you certainly got out of his way. He'd push old ladies out of the <laughs> way and everything. He just wanted to get on. Yeah. And if you saw him coming, as I said, you'd just run for your life. So you, when you worked for Bob Charlie, he'd moved on from the League of Eagles era, is that right? Well, he seemed to be out on his own. He was doing more. He was doing the Midweeker and he was doing his own publication, which was like you'd, you'd uh, buy the publication, which had like racing comments, also the, the barrier trial stuff for the week. So... Um, and I was doing some stuff with him for mm. that. And did you learn a lot from that? Were you, did you sort of start to become a winning punter then? Well, he had a uh, – well, this was all pre-internet um, day, so yeah. every horse had a card. So I was doing cards on the Monday. And, you know, it was quite laborious stuff, but yeah. you'd, you'd see patterns in horses um, yeah. and they were rating them and put the cards back in and get them out for each race, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it, as I said – a bit laborious, but eventually you you saw things happening with horses if they were good, fresh, whatever. Um, different colour codes for for different tracks, all that sort of stuff. So there's no computers. No computers. What year is this? Stage. Like early eighties or something? We're talking. Or? Oh, you, very yeah, very yeah. much early eighties. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, 
was you sort of mentioned the trials. You were going to the trials a lot around this time, were you? Was that a big part of what you did for Bob Charlie? Yes, yeah, so I did the comments for the barrier trials for yeah. him. Um, yeah. And then the, uh, the AJC and the STC asked me to call uh, the trials on course as well. So, uh-huh. And was there a big edge in the trials? I heard you in another podcast say that you'd find a horse and the bookies had put up six to one. In today's world, they put those, that same horse up at six to four because the edge that you had around the trials then doesn't exist anymore. Trials were fantastic for me. Yeah. Um, and they weren't really uh, thought of as much as a form in those days. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't worry about them. Um, we found Gold Bros one day, 100 to one in the Silver Slipper, first start in a race. Um, and there was a number of other horses throughout the years that, you know, you're able to land on and, and have a good win on. And are the trials still a big part of your punting these days? They are, but they're not even pulled up now and someone's tweeting out, well, something's trialled. So yeah. it's, it's a completely different ball game now to what it used to be in the old days. And I know like all punters, you're going to keep you know, your, your, your secrets pretty close to your chest, but can you give us a very basic idea of what punters could look, should look for in trials? Well, look, I think you've just got to go back and, and see if, if something's won a trial um, and then raced, just go back and have a look at what it did. And what you were looking for is probably seeing if they were necked out the back. I don't really like leaders in trials. I think mm-hmm. they're a little bit flattered in those short trials. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a hard and fast rule. It's A lot of it's gut feeling really. And just experience of watching yeah, them over exactly, and over again. Yeah. yeah. So if we move on from the Bob Charlie year, I believe you stopped working for Bob Charlie and then you started working, working for Mark Reed. <coughs> Mark Reed's almost a mythical character in our game because people love hearing about his story. He's very... You know, verbose and brash back in the day. How did you start working for him? Well, Bob was um, retiring, I think. Um, I think he had plenty of real estate investments. Yeah. So he was, you know, he, I think he was sweet. So yeah. he got me a job with Mark. Yeah. So I was working uh, in the office there. He had card system as well. Yeah. So no internet at that stage. So every horse had a card that we had, oh, it was about seven or eight of us doing Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane uh, on the cards. We're going to work at the races. So working six days a week. We're yeah. at the track um, Wednesdays and Saturdays and public holidays and we were in the office uh, mainly the other days. So I, I believe the office was at the bottom of Boomerang, which at the time was the most expensive house in Sydney. The most expensive bought. house in Sydney and yeah. he converted the bottom room into an office and there was a movie theatre you know, next door to that uh, in, in the basement of Boomerang. Was it good times? It sounds like it was pretty good. It was a bit of fun. Everyone yeah. loved to bet in the office. Yeah, um, yeah so we, we, we had a bit of fun, a bit of luck as well. Did you roll up the hill to King's Cross and go to the, the restaurants and the clubs and stuff? Have you had a we, good we did go to the restaurants. There were some good restaurants around. Even the, the boys would go up and get a bit of lunch and bring it back. Um, there were some good good foods around up there. Yeah. yeah, and I've heard you also say that when you work, worked with Mark Reed, the punt was huge. It was enormous. Why was it so big? What about it? Well, I think there weren't many other options around for punting in those days. You either played the pokies or you, you bet on the races. Like, it's yeah. not like um, it is now. You can bet on just about everything, you know. You're yeah. betting on overseas sport. There was none of that. And in, and in Sydney, you just bet on Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane as well. There was no Perth. There was no South Australia. So it was all the markets were, you know, only three venues were getting all the, all the money. So yeah. it was a completely different pool as well. And big punters were just flocking to Sydney. It was the big, big ring. And they'd, so they'd come. They'd be all the action always took place in the Sydney ring. Uh, well, Mark was on interstate for a while, and then he moved to the Sydney ring, and he moved back to to interstate. But blokes would fly up from Melbourne even midweek just yeah. to bet with uh, 
the Sydney interstate bookies to Barry Long and Gary Roberts used to fly in from from Melbourne to bet on Ballarat or Bendigo. They, they were bookies, were they? They were punters, big punters, pun, big right. punters, yeah, massive punters. And were they Gary actually professionals or they road. just like yeah, to professionals? Punt. Yeah, yeah. Barry Long was a death adder. Yeah, he pulled off one of the biggest plungers in Australia on Torbeck, and okay. and Splinter Roberts. Um, was a big punter as well, and as what? I said, he he won enough money to buy Vaux Rogue. Yeah, right. So what <laughs> what happened with Torbeck? Well, Torbeck was just a big go around Australia. I think it was thirty three to nothing, and yeah. Yeah, it was it was a big go. And yeah. there were plenty of big goes in that era. And yeah, so a couple that you might have been involved with with Mark Reed is it Manorick and High Signal? Were they a couple of big goes? Yeah, uh, Manorick was. Um, I think we were working at Randwick one day, and he said, "Oh, we're, we're going to Canberra to work tomorrow." And we all said, "Oh, turn it <laughs> up, you know, give us one day off." Anyway, we all lobbed there at uh, Boomerang in the morning, and he said, "We're not bookmaking today. We're we're going down to punt." And he had us all standing in different spots. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. He ordered an armoured car with the money, so we got the. <laughs> Got the cash and, out. And, the, and there's enough bookies down in Canberra to justify. The, the ring was massive. Unbelievable. The the how, many, ma- how many bookies? Oh, well, there was about 20 on the rails yeah. and there was just bookies everywhere out the back <laughs> of the Sunday meeting scene. Well, bookmaking then was massive. And what were the limits? Would the bookies have to bet to the limit or they bet you well, more than Well, sometimes they'd bet you more. They yeah. were just um, a lot of more fearless bookies in those days. Mm. They, they weren't just saying you're on to win three and five. They're just mm. or whatever you like, some blokes. Mm. There a lot of big bookies down in that era, Wagga and all that, who went mm. to that Canberra meeting. Um, and, um, yeah, so Armoured Car booked with the cash, flew down on a private jet because he didn't want to go commercial and be seen. How good. Uh, and Armoured Car to pick up the money afterwards. So. <laughs> And yeah. what, what price was it? Look, the market got knocked off. I think someone saw us. Uh, we were, we didn't probably handle that too well. We got there and we huddled around the corner. I think we were seen. So yeah. I think they put two and two together. I think seven or two or threes might have been bet and into, you know, kiss your ass, so yeah. to speak. So. And what was it that, that you and Mark liked and the, and the team liked about it so much? Was it was it one of oh, his horses? It was horses? a first starter, yeah. Right, one, one of his horses? Yeah, it was, it was, right. it was so in it was... His, um, his mother-in-law's name. yeah. And I think it had been transferred from Henry Davis to a bush trainer and put in his name about a couple of weeks before. So yeah. it was, it was, it was supposed to look like the well, horse was trained in the in the region and just going there for a maiden. But yeah. um, and it won easy. Yeah, cheating. And how much? What was the how many, What was the result? Oh, I, I, I don't know. The Hundreds exact of thousands. Figure, but we, they were counting the money for a long time. Yeah. And what about High Signal? What What was the story there? Well, High Signal Mark was overseas that time and. Um, Robert Burney, who is Nick Burney's father, who's now on Sky Channel. Robert yep. um, rang me. We were supposed to be on holiday, so we weren't working on the Saturday bookmaking. He said, oh, I need you at Canterbury. So we all turned up there, all got our cash to to bet with and uh, I had part of the outer ring to, to take uh, the money, which was I think they bet fives, maybe 11 or two. And, uh, yeah, it got the money, first starter as well. And once again, like Mark Reed owned it and... And all that Mark Reed owned it. Yeah, it was in his yeah. name. That, that that one was in his name, and yeah. uh, Greg Hall flew up to it. First starter, but that, I think the bookies were a little bit shy after getting closer. But yeah. still got five to one or eleven to two. Were, were, were you working with Mark around the getting closer? No, area? I was uh, working for Peter Barrett in the outer. Actually, uh-huh. Peter Barrett, Porky Barrett was a a bookie. I used to do running from the from the paddock into the ledge. He worked in the ledger, so if the price went off, I used to run between the two. Because the ledger was actually a strong ring in those days. Jeff Landry was in there. Paul yeah. Byrne was in there, um, and then he graduated into the um, into the 
the main paddock ring um, and I was working on the ground for him that day and, yeah, the money was just untold. Yeah. And how often did it come off for Mark? Like more often than not when he set these first starters and stuff up, did it come off? Was there a few times when it didn't come off? Not that I can recall, actually. Not to that extent. They're the only three massive ones that I know, but there might have been others. But, um, yeah, I think that that was – those three were – but nothing else like it as far as I know. Yeah. Um, And are you in contact with Mark these days? No, I haven't spoken to him for years. He moved back to Melbourne. I was still doing a little bit of stuff for him for a couple of years, uh, just doing the cards in Sydney and – uh, but then he, he knocked that on the head and then, of course, he moved on from that up to yeah. up to Darwin. Yeah. And, um, yeah, because I, I met him for the first time. Actually, I did a podcast with him about a year ago and it's easily our most popular podcast. People love listening to him in his stories and stuff. Yeah. So. Well, he was well before his time. He yeah. Was, yeah. Like he'd, he'd, he'd bet anyone and um, yeah. he had an opinion as well. Like yeah. a lot of bookies in those days would just put a price up and and didn't know what round it was basically. But mm. um he had an opinion. He would tens the field one day in a, a Phillies race. I'd never seen anything like yeah. it um, at Ramwick. But, um, yeah, it was great working on the ground for him. You know, you'd go and put five on this up the back ring, all that sort of stuff. So Yeah. So I, I first started the races in 1997 <coughs> um, working for Warren Woodcock and also the Bartholomew boys were working for Warren at the time. And when I got to the race, I was very keen to learn and I'd ask a lot of questions and I was put on the ground and just sort of shadowing Sean basically and I learned a lot off Sean and one of the first things Sean said to me was when you walked in the ring he was like that's Mark Sheen he's a very good judge watch him let us know if he does anything now what I want to do is turn that around on you he must have done his money (laughs) no no you were were one of the better judges in the ring for sure I remember but um what I want to do is turn that around on you and when you were in the ring and you always kept a low profile you're a pretty humble guy you sort of stood at the back watch what was going on but who were some of the bookies in the ring and the punters in the ring and even the trainers in the ring that you used to watch and be influenced by what they would do? Well, I don't know if I was influenced by what they did. I sort of watched what punters backed. Um, and certain punters were aligned to certain stables as well or had a yes. bit of head start in some joints. Um, so you'd obviously keep your eye on that. Yeah. Um, but if somebody backed something I'd, I, and I didn't like it, I'd be happy because you knew you'd just wait and you'd get a better price yourself. Yeah. So. But there were so many people at the races who were pro punters or semi-pros in those days that yeah. there was so many different opinions. Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of stuck to my own guns what I liked. I, I don't think I was – tried not to be influenced by other people. Yes. But I would be – I'd, I'd look and see what people back for sure, yeah. And your, your selections, was it based off the trials? Was it based off your form? Were you able to price horses? I did a little bit of markets, but I started doing a lot of sectional times in the early 80s because the only thing you had in those days was they'd give you the last 600 in the overall time. And I remember it was at Canterbury one Wednesday and a thing came from well back. I thought to myself, well, I don't know if the leader stopped or it went like far lap. Mm. And I, I bought a couple of stopwatches, started doing a lot of sectional times myself. Off, off the, at the races? Just, no. Uh, off no, the videos? Just off the videos. Yeah, yeah. I'd do them for the trials as well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I did that for a long time. I was still doing it from the trials myself, actually. Yeah, yeah. and it was, a, it was really effective? Well, it helped me get a guide as to, to the pace of a race, the early pace particularly, yeah. and also the finishing speed of the winner. Like a horse can look like they're going through to their one, but as I said, sometimes the leaders are stopping because they've gone too hard early. So it just helped me get a bit of a guide of the race pattern. But a lot of people are buying stuff like that now. Yeah. They're getting, getting sectional times just to come home. Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. um, 
and track bias also I was looking for that in the early 80s. Um, nobody really spoke about it a lot. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was doing a lot of videos, handwriting videos of every horse. It used to take me about four or five hours to do each meeting. Yeah. Um, I'd just try and do them in a bit of code. But And you were just doing Sydney or were you doing Melbourne? I was just doing Sydney. No, yeah. I, I, like I'd, I'd bet at the carnivals in the state but, yeah. but, but mainly Sydney. Yeah. yeah. And do you find it harder now to back a winner? Is it, is it Absolutely. Much, much harder now than it was yeah. back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. Was there a particular period when you had your best run? Can you remember when it was... <clears throat> I think about um, yeah, mid-80s, oh, look, I, I was very lucky. I, I landed on a horse called Marooned um, before it won the Sydney Cup. It ran third in a welter, first start in Australia. It was an English horse by Mill Reef who came out, uh, Robert Sangster, aren't it? Uh-huh. Anyway, it had its first start at Canterbury on a Saturday in a welter, 15.50, drew the inside barrier, got back, flew home. And I said, oh, this is a machine. You know? yeah. So I backed it in the Sydney Cup. I got... I took three or four horses in the Doncaster. Uh-huh. Doubles? Doubles. Yep. Because everyone um, played doubles back then, didn't they? Doubles were massive then. In third place, the Tasmanian Scruples, and here comes Marooned. Marooned on the outside with that big white blaze has charged up, and Maroon has raced to the lead, coming to the 200 mark. Maroon shot away, getting into second place. Wide out now is Amlock, and now Sophia battling on with Fox Seal, but it's all Maroon as a ball. Amlock fell in the straights. Amlock fell, Marooned is clear. Now Sophia and Fox Seal won't pick him up, and Maroon wins the cup. Maroon first. Now yeah. And I got the double for a, for a lot of money, mm. um, and it sort of gave me a good bank to, to get going. And I had a bit of luck with doubles over the years. Um, I didn't take too many, but um, I was lucky enough to, to get a few home. So, mm. yeah, they so were good. Set you up somewhat in life. Mm. Cool. And just going back to the, the ring in sort of the 90s, so Sean and King's, um, you know, they've obviously been the, some of the great survivors of the game. They've been hugely successful. They came into the game and they were very different to what your sort of your standard punters were and they had a different way about them. Do you remember when they came and what was your opinion of them? A lot of people thought that they'd, you know, there'd be one day wonders come and go because they didn't have what it takes. Do you remember first seeing them and, and well, the way they, they handled themselves? Well, they were a bit more out in the in the outer, weren't they? Like mm. I used to go on the members more often than not because um, I was a member and it was easy to look at the horses actually to be in the members. So, um, But there were so many people outside ring, you would have known mm. yourself, that the joint was packed, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, but you would see people backing horses. As I said, you'd, you'd, you'd look at people and, well, they're a smart judge. They're backing a lot of winners. So you've got yeah. to take notice of what they're doing. Mm, mm. Very good. So we moved to sort of the more modern day times and you've had a lot to do with James Heron Bloodstock over <laughs> nearly the last decade. I think I think maybe 2015 you started doing some work with him. Yeah, probably just after TVN finished, James approached me to, to do a little bit of work um, with him, just sort of helping out with their horses, maybe just giving an opinion on them. Yeah. Um, some sort of a guide for placing, but um, and yeah, I said oh, I was going to go to um, Hong Kong. They actually they offered me the job in Hong Kong to call, um, and uh, the club flew me over there very kindly, but uh, it didn't really grab me the joint. Did you uh, was it? Did you always think that Hong Kong would be great, or was it never really a burning desire to go to Hong Kong? No, no, not at that stage of my life. Maybe, maybe if I was twenty five or thirty or yeah. something, and I'm just sort of just starting out. Um, mm-hmm. It would have been fantastic, mm. but um, yeah, it didn't. It didn't work out anyway. I was in discussion with James before I went there to have a look at Hong Kong, and um, anyway, we decided to to do something together. He wanted me to do a little bit more than probably I wanted. I still wanted to punt and mm-hmm. go to the races. He was a bit more bloodstock stuff, mm. um, so we were looking for horses to 
maybe to buy into, um, maybe to sell to Hong Kong. So mm. uh, that's when actually I'd suggest that they try and buy into Red Zell early on because he'd won it at Warwick Farm um, and then he had a bad season after that. I think he won his first two and then he had a bad season and, and then they gelded him. So mm. there would have been no good. Jones was looking for stay-in prospects. Yeah. So um, as it turned out, he... Uh, they didn't go on with that, but then of course he got him in the, in the Everest. In the, in the yeah. Everest, so yeah, yeah. So it was a bit of an association there from the early on. We, we bought a couple of horses. One that won a Group Two race in Melbourne, but I sort of backed off from that a little bit and wanted to just mainly go to the races, do my own thing, and but but still helping him with uh, some of his stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so because at the moment they're going good, they've got Espionage and Bodyguard in their Colt Syndicate, so they weighed into the market um, with you know their Colt Syndicate a lot of high net investors, high net worth investors put money in and they're in, in the yearling sales trying to get these good horses. Yeah. So, and Espionage won the Breeders' Plate and then you've got Bodyguard who won the Maribyrnong down in Melbourne. Yeah. What involvement do you have in those horses from when they're bought at the yearling sales until they race no, in those no, races? No, not a lot actually. Yeah. Uh, I'm only giving them um, some barrier trial information. I give them a, a rundown on their trials where I think they're at. Mm-hmm. Um, I give them a review of the their races, a pre-race um, voice memo as well for the owners. Yep. And sometimes if they trial, if we've got older horses as well, they they don't just manage that cold syndicate. They've got other horses there, so I might suggest oh, we go here with that. But the trainers and James have got the final decision on that. I'm only offering an opinion of what I think. Maybe yes. if I owned the horse, I would go do this, do that. Yeah. So they don't always listen to me, I can assure yeah. you. So it's just a, just some sort of a guide to, mm-hmm. to give them, yeah. But are you moving into your busiest period with James Harrow and Bloodstock because all the two-year-olds are coming to their... Yeah, well, they come along in drips and drabs too. Yeah. Like some are in work and some aren't. And then you've got horses from other, other years that um, may have reached their level and we're trying to maybe sell them to Hong Kong or, or whatever. Yeah. And we're looking to you know, to try and place them correctly that they can win a race and then go on the market sort of thing. So yeah. um, that's an important part of it as well. So yeah. you've got to try and find the right race for them. Yeah. And we've been talking a bit in the den lately about how to handle losses. A few of the boys in the den have been getting stripped and it was a bit of a conversation last week in one of our shows and it resonated with a lot of people. People like to get a bit of guidance about how to handle it. You're one of the great survivors. How... <laughs> How do you handle the, the, the bad runs and, and the losses and stuff? Yeah, well, I always thought um, trying to go away on a holiday, but then you think, oh, I'm going to spend 10 on a holiday. That's 10 out of the bank, isn't <laughs> it? <laughs> 10 you could have been betting with, yeah. Um, I tended to work harder, to tell you the truth. I would stay in the office longer and try and do more videos and go back and try and find out what I missed. Yeah. Um, that doesn't always work, but um, I had one horrific run there back in the 90s where... I think it rained for about eight weeks in a row and there was no poly tracks then. They were just get, uh, on the grass and a lot of horses weren't getting enough work and I was backing things and they were getting flogged. Yeah. And it, But it didn't matter what you did. You were yeah. just doing your money, you know. So it, it probably would have been a point where I should have shut up shop, stopped betting, waited till the tracks dried out. But you can't help yourself yeah. if... Um, you know, you got to put food on the table, so the great to speak. So, yeah. Did you nearly put yourself out of play in that in that period? No, or? I still I still had a bank, but I yeah. I did a lot of money. Did, I know did some damage. Yeah. Excellent. And to finish off, if you wouldn't mind, can we talk about your your favourite horse jockey and trainer over the years, or the the best horse jockey and trainer? Can I put you on the spot? The best horse you've seen in your time in the great best game? horse. Well, I'd I'd have to go with the Kingston Town. Okay. I've probably 
I was there uh, through his great uh, era of winning from six furlongs to two miles. Not many yeah. horses do that. Um, I saw a bit of surround as well. I don't think I'll ever see a three-year-old filly like that. What she did in the, her year to win the, the Caulfield Guineas against the boys, the Cox Plate, the Oaks. She won the Ascot Vale Stakes, which is the equivalent of the Coolmore as well. So yeah. she was a freak. Yeah. Um, yeah, but probably Kingston Towns. But then you're thinking about Winks and Black Caviar as well, so it's hard to discount them either. Sure. What about Best Jockey? Um, oh, there's so many. Uh, I did love backing Darren Beeman, though, I must admit. He's a bit more. Peter Cook was as cool as a cucumber. I remember one day I backed this thing from the trials. I thought it was a moral, and he led on it. It was always called Pradnapper. Is this Peter Cook or Beeman? Peter Cook. Peter yeah, Cook. Yeah. Neville Voigt trained it. Anyway, it led. And the thing ambled up to it and went about a neck clear and he was just sitting there, hadn't moved. And I said, what is this bloke doing? <laughs> and the next week he just gave it one click and away it went. But I, he was so cool and collected. You, you never – great hands and heels. And you saw him on Leilani and horses like that where he was just – didn't go for the whip all that often, just the best hands and heels rider you'd ever see. But but Beeman was a great jockey. Like he would do it Wednesdays and Saturdays. Yeah. That was the thing. Like he'd ride five on a Wednesday canary. Mm, he sort of dominate – Beeman dominated the game like J-Mac does these yeah. days. A lot of similarities yeah. there. But, of course, he was riding for the big stables. He was riding for yeah. Hawks and whatever. He had the cattle, but yeah. you still had to steer him, didn't you? Yeah. Best trainer? Oh, well, I suppose TJ and Bart were – you know, I was coming up through those formative years, though – Absolutely outstanding, but what Waller's doing now will probably yeah. put paid to them in yeah. time, won't he? Yeah. Well, Kieran Ma's coming up. Ma and Eustace, yeah, they, well, apparently they, they want to take Waller down, which would be great for racing. <laughs> so it be interesting to see. They're pretty good. Well, the, the trouble is, though, that big stables are starting to dominate now and the yeah. small stables are – look, we saw Tommy Smith, you said, six and seven runners, and they, were thought, they thought in those days that they were going to bracket his runners because he had too many runners in a race. It's almost getting to that stage with – with Waller at stages, but it would be good to see some new blood with uh, with Mar and Eustace coming in in more numbers. But you can't rub out the smaller stables as well. It becomes a bit boring Yes, seeing one or two trainers win everything, isn't yeah. it? Did you know TJ and Bart at all? I didn't know Bart at all. I knew TJ a little bit because um, I used to go to the track in the old days um, when I was very young. I used to write down the, the times at the, uh, at the track for Mick O'Brien and, and Joe Toro. So... Um, I knew Tommy a little bit. Now, I had a horse in the early uh, 90s that um, he tried to buy off me as well. So I wish he'd bought it because it turned into a mongrel. Yeah, right. <laughs> I won a lot of money on it, but it turned into a mongrel at the finish. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> mm. Brilliant, mate. Thank you very much. People really enjoy that. So um, thanks for coming thanks, in. I appreciate it. All the best over the new year. Cheers, Thank mate. You. Thank you. Thank you.